Last time we spoke about the operations Haigo and Yugo, and the continued drive against Shaggy Ridge. Lieutenant General Mutaguchi Renya sought to invade India, and he was continuously scheming to drag the rest of the IGA on a rather insane endeavor. Yet the Allies also tossed their own operations in the Burma theater, greatly disrupting the Japanese planners and achieving numerous objectives. Over in New Guinea, Vesey launched an offensive against the Kankiri Saddle, designated Operation Cutthroat. Meanwhile, General Nakano's men were in a very dire situation, with the Allied seizure of Seo and Sedor. Multiple Japanese units found themselves all doing the very same thing, retreating further and further north. It seemed no matter what defensive lines they established, the Allies kept their advance over land and periodically amphibiously assaulted their flanks in rear. The formidable defensive region of Shaggy Ridge was not going to hold up against the Allied advance much longer. This episode is The Fall of Shaggy Ridge. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Greg Watson. But before we begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and so much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Over there, I'm releasing episode two in my Kanji Ishiwara series, Manchu Kuo, How to Build a Puppet State. That was originally exclusive to my Patreon. And if you want to listen to exclusive podcasts, check out my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel. This month's exclusive podcast over there is me answering the question as to why did the Japanese perform so many atrocities during World War II? It's a very in-depth episode and quite gruesome. Please check it out. The Australian advance over land and the Seder operation had paid great dividends over and above the establishment of four military base construction. The Allies had formed a giant wedge between a significant residue of the Japanese fleeing the Finchhafen area. General Adachi, commanding the 18th Area Army, was facing a complete nightmare. Prior to the American landing, he had visited the 51st Divisional HQ at Kiari, and then he traveled overland to the 20th Division over at Sio. He was fully aware of the hardship facing both forces. Meanwhile, news of the Seder landings hit Rabaul, creating a massive debate. Senior officers sought to bring over all available troops possible to try and retake the town. Others sought to save as many troops as possible for the defense of Wewak, considering it the next main Allied target. General Imamura favored bypassing Seder altogether and withdrawing over inland trails. Thus, Adachi appointed General Nakano to take charge of the withdrawal to Madang and he ordered eight other companies to cross the Ramu Valley to Bogajim to harass the Americans at Sedor. These were purely defensive maneuvers. The Japanese had also faced the daunting task of how to evacuate large numbers of troops from the 20th and 51st Divisions from the impending Allied trap. 
The Caddo took the lead, getting the 20th to retreat up the coast while the 51st worked their way over inland trails. Nakano would soon be forced to abandon the plans, and he ordered both to pull into the interior to retreat towards Medang, nearly 200 miles away. This would mean the exhausted, starving, and sick Japanese had to battle through the jungles, ridges, rivers, and other horrors of the Finestri Range. Meanwhile, Sator was easily secured by the 32nd Division, and the Australian 7th Division advanced through the Ramu Valley and came face to face with Shaggy Ridge. Shaggy Ridge had been transformed into a heavily fortified position with numerous nasty features such as the Kankiri Saddle, Pimple, Intermediate Sniper's Pimple, Green Sniper's Pimple, Rathura 1 and 2, and so forth. During the first weeks of January, the Australians made very little headway against the honeycombed Japanese defenses. Their air forces were called in numerous times to plaster the ridgelines in a three-day assault designated Operation Cutthroat. On the 18th of January, B-25s from Nadzab and Port Moresby would drop 500-pound bombs all over the defensives. On the 21st, P-40s strafed and bombed the area, and this was met with some reorganizing of the ground forces. The 15th and 18th Brigades relieved the exhausted 21st and 25th. Brigadier Chilton began his new job by opening up heavy artillery upon Prothero 1. Captain T.L. James with the 2 and 2nd Pioneer Battalion described the attack on January the 20th. At 1,000 hours, we met 2 and 12th Infantry Battalion at the appointed rendezvous, where I met Lieutenant Colonel Bourne. We did not stay long at the rendezvous, but formed up and commenced the long approach march. It was a grueling day. The long single file moved silently up the deep ravines, scaling cliff faces with the aid of ropes and lawyer vines. It took us the entire day to cover the four-mile approach. In one spot that was almost impossible to traverse, a steep-sided cliff, they rigged lawyer vines between trees to act as a handrail and allow us to pull ourselves up. Despite the harsh conditions and fierce resistance, the Australians got atop Canning Saddle and then forded the Mene River and drew near the village. Colonel Matsumoto's men were now trapped between the 2 and 9th Battalion, advancing from the Pimple, and the 2 and 12th Battalion from Prothero 1. To the east, there was the 2 and 10th Battalion, about a mile away, from the main Japanese defensive position along the Kankiri Saddle. On the 22nd, the 2 and 12th dispatched D Company, who advanced between Prothero 1 and Prothero 2. At 10.40 a.m., they began to fire their artillery upon Prothero 2, and at 11.15 a.m., a platoon tried to progress but was held down by Japanese snipers and machine gun fire. A Company came through D Company to advance along Shaggy Ridge until 3.30 p.m. once they were held up by Japanese fire. Then a single Australian section rushed forward led by a Bren gunner named Private Bug. His team hit a Japanese machine gun crew from just 30 yards away. He seized a toehold quickly upon Prothero 2. After some very bitter fighting, Prothero 2 had fallen into Allied hands. Meanwhile to the south, the 2 and 9th sent a patrol out on the 22nd, and they found pillboxes at Makani's Knoll, occupied with Japanese gunners. At 10.45 a.m., an Allied artillery hit Prothero 2, and Captain Taylor led a company of the 2 and 9th in assault at Makani's Knoll. They were quickly pinned down, but by 1.15 p.m., word reached them that Prothero 2 was captured, and the entire battalion was to push along Shaggy Ridge. During the afternoon, Taylor took his company to the western side of Shaggy Ridge, getting ready for a new flanking maneuver against Makani's Knoll. The men fought their way up the knoll, cleaning up pillbox one after another, capturing Makani's Knoll by nightfall. It cost them eight men wounded. More than a hundred dead Japanese were found over the Prothero Shaggy Ridge area, 
when the mop-up crews did their work. Meanwhile, the 2 and 10th kept up their pressure in the east. On the 22nd, A Company, led by Lieutenant Gunn, seized a foothold on Ferrara Ridge. This would prompt the enemy to abandon Camps Hill, which was occupied by the 2 and 10th by 5.20 p.m. During the night and the early morning of January the 23rd, two counterattacks were launched by the Japanese. At 2.40, the four troops of A Company on the ridge were attacked from the south, but the attack was repulsed with no casualties. After this, the Australians moved down the track towards Kankiri. Captain Hop's B Company of the 2 and 12th advanced down the track from Prothero 2. By 6 p.m., they were atop the saddle around Crater Hill when they came across a Japanese gun position containing 150 rounds of 75mm ammunition. Half an hour later, they ran into some resistance from the slopes atop Crater Hill. They would have to pull back to Kankiri Saddle to dig in for the night. The 2 and 10th then dispatched D Company, led by Captain Kumnik, to advance along the Farai Ridge. They made it 1,500 yards before running into a well-entrenched position that held them down with machine gun fire. During the night, however, the Japanese abandoned their entrenchments for Cam Hill, allowing the 2 and 10th to establish itself in a position roughly 1,200 yards southeast of Crater Hill the next day. On the 24th, the 2 and 9th took over the responsibility for Shaggy Ridge, up to Prothero 2, allowing the 2 and 12th to advance up Kankiri. Small patrols from B Company of the 2 and 12th reached the top of Crater Hill that day, finding an enemy position on the southern slopes. On the 25th, the 2 and 12th and 2 and 10th probed enemy defenses on all sides of Crater Hill, looking for decent approaches to attack. This led to several skirmishes, seeing both sides suffer heavy casualties. One patrol led by Lieutenant Coles of the 2 and 2nd Pioneers surveyed the Papamul track along the valley of Mujim, while simultaneously firing upon small bands of retreating Japanese. The Australians gradually converged to attack Crater Hill, but Matsumoto's defenders put up a valiant effort to repel the assaults. On the 26th, Brigadier Chilton ordered Companies C and D of the 2 and 9th and Companies C and B of the 2 and 12th to assault Crater Hill. This saw Companies C and D of the 2 and 9th perform an outflanking maneuver to the north tip of Minjin Valley to hit the enemy's right flank, while Companies C and B of the 2 and 12th held the enemy down. Captain A. Marshall's C Company led off at 10.35 a.m., passing from Shaggy Ridge through the Kenkiri Saddle and then to the north while Captain Taylor's D Company followed to provide flank protection. By midday, Marshall reported that he had advanced some 600 yards and passed through several old and abandoned positions finding no enemy. Cautiously, he pushed on. At 5 p.m., he reached the summit of 4,100 feature. The main enemy position was to the south between Marshall and the 2 and 10th and 2 and 12th battalions. Leaving Taylor to occupy the summit of 4,100, Marshall advanced south towards Crater Hill in an attempt to surprise the enemy from the rear. He met them about 300 yards southeast from the summit, just at dusk. The leading platoon attacked along the usual Razorback Ridge, but withdrew because of heavy machine gun fire. At 7 p.m., Marshall sent Lieutenant White's platoon round on the right flank, but the approach from this flank was very difficult, and White was killed. By the nighttime, they had successfully surrounded Matsumoto's weakened defenders. Matsumoto's defenders had established extremely formidable positions and had a large number of automatic weapons at their disposal. Matsumoto was ready alongside his men to make a final stand. Basically, a siege of Crater Hill began and would only end after five brutal days of battle. The first two days saw Chilton order the 2 and 9th to take responsibility for the southern slopes of 4,100 feature and the Kankiri Saddle, while the 2 and 12th held Protheros and Shaggy Ridge, and the 2 and 10th maintained pressure on the southeastern slopes of Crater Hill.
Skirmishes broke out everywhere as the artillery smashed Crater Hill. Captain White of the 2 and 4th Field Regiment fired 2,000 shells, shattering trees, which unfortunately created more timber obstacles for the advancing Australians. At 9.30 a.m. on the 29th, 19 Kitty Hawks dive-bombed Crater Hill, followed 10 minutes after by artillery fire. At 1.30 p.m., the artillery laid down a barrage and machine gun fire covered an assault on Crater Hill from the west by Captain Don's company of the 2 and 9th. The leading platoon attempted to rush the enemy position up a very steep and open slope, but the Japanese, entrenched on a razorback, were too strong and they drove them back. The Australians also had the bad luck to be shelled by their own artillery during some of these actions. Each time they performed an assault, the stubborn Japanese held firm. Finally, on the 30th, with the help of some heavy rain, Matsumoto decided to evacuate during the night. Matsumoto and the remnants of his force withdrew towards Yakopi and the Kubanao Valley. After dawn on the 31st, the Australian patrols would find Crater Hill abandoned, and it was quite a horror show. They found a ghastly mess. At least 14 dead were found and evidence of burials alongside them. The 2 and 9th and 2 and 10th advanced occupying the hill on February the 1st. And with that, Shaggy Ridge and the Kankiri Saddle had finally fallen. Chilton sent out patrols to pursue the retreating Japanese and to perform mop-up operations. By February the 6th, his forces had managed to seize Papa and Umusan. The Australians had suffered 46 deaths, 147 wounded, while the Japanese figures were estimated to be around 500 casualties. Meanwhile, Brigadier Hammer had also carried out two other operations during this time period. The first was a diversionary attack against the Spenlub Spur, held by elements of the 5th Company 80th Regiment. This was carried out by Captain Kennedy's company of the 24th Battalion, who managed to surprise the Japanese and quickly seized Cameron's Knoll. On January the 30th, the 57th 60th Battalion led by Lieutenant Colonel Robert Martson departed Kitoba and alongside another company led by Captain McIntosh assaulted Orgoruna, Kesa, and Koba. The Australians would find Orgoruna and Kessa undefended. Lieutenant Martson ordered Major Barker's 8th Company to patrol Koba, and they would enter Koba on February the 1st finding nothing, so they pushed on towards Mataloi II. There were signs of very recent occupation, and 200 yards along the track, they were ambushed. Barker brought heavy fire down upon the Japanese ambush position and managed to capture Koba by that night. On the morning of the 3rd, about 400 yards east of Koba, Barker again struck a Japanese ambush position. They quickly outflanked the enemy, who withdrew through Mataloi II, towards Mataloi I. By this time, Mataloi II was occupied at 6.30pm, but there was not enough time to hit Mataloi I, nor to allow adequate consolidation of Mataloi II before dark. At 9.30pm, the Japanese counterattacked from the direction of Mataloi I, commencing the assault with a heavy bombardment. As Metaloy II could be defended from three sides, Barker decided he could hold the area best from some high ground to the south, which would also be out of range of enemy motors. Accordingly, he ordered a withdrawal and departed with his headquarters in one platoon. Apparently, the others did not reach the other platoons who were encircled while the remainder of his company was withdrawing to Koba. Long-range enemy machine gun fire was directed at Kessa at the same time as the counterattack developed at Metaloy II. The 57th 60th pulled out, concluding their little raid. Now Brigadier Hammer's 15th were getting ready to pursue Matsumoto's detachment, who were now fleeing towards Quato. But that is all for New Guinea today, as we are now moving back over to New Britain. The last time we were over in New Britain, the Americans had just captured Hill 660, and they were unleashing patrols to try and figure out where the Japanese were concentrating. 
Now they sought to secure the Borgen Bay-Itney River line. Meanwhile, on the other side, General Matsuda's battered men had begun a retreat heading east via the Aisulminpawa Kakumo Trail towards Kapopo. They also received reinforcements in the form of the fresh 51st Reconnaissance Regiment, who took up the job of rearguard. The Japanese knew the terrain better than their American counterparts, thus they held a distinct advantage. They knew good grounds to put up defenses and how long they could hold out in such places until they should retreat. The Americans did not enjoy good maps. They had to painstakingly explore wherever they went. They relied on native reports on where to go, but in the end, they were like explorers jumping into jungles, atop mountains, and a hell of a lot of swampy territory. The rainforest could be so dense that patrols moving just yards from another would not even know it. Imagine trying to find a hypothetical objective in such a place. Thus, an enormous amount of vital patrolling was performed, beginning on January the 19th with Captain Ronald Slay's men of L Company, the 1st Marines. They advanced past Mount Gulu, Anglia Volcano, and Molulu before heading down the saddle of Mount Tangi. They managed to ambush a group of 20 Japanese being led by eight armed natives, who quickly fled east after six Japanese were killed. Slay then took his men across the east-west government trail, only finding some Japanese telephone wire, which they severed. On the 22nd, two patrols, each consisting of reinforced companies, departed the airdrome perimeter to converge from two different directions along the trail junction Captain Slay's men had discovered. The first were elements of the 1st Battalion, 1st Marines, led by Captain Nikolai Stevenson. The other were led by Captain Preston Parrish, with elements of the 7th Marines, who took landing crafts to Sag Sag, the terminus of the east-west government trail. Parrish's men would bivouac around 1.5 miles inland near Aipati, on the 24th, while Stevenson's men headed south of Mount Gulu. Both patrols found no Japanese, but Parrish gained some valuable intelligence from a native village who indicated there had been several Japanese parties around. On the 23rd, Stevenson and his men ran into a concealed machine gun crew 30 yards near Mount Langa. The Americans scrambled to fight back at an enemy they could not see. They did not lose any men, but they had no idea if they hit any Japanese either. They continued their advance afterwards, and they would be ambushed again, this time 1,500 yards south of Mount Bululu. This time, they seemed to be facing a force of platoon strength. By the 25th, Stevenson and his men were pulling back to Mount Gulu, and they were relieved by another incoming patrol led by Captain George Hunt's K Company, 1st Marines. Meanwhile, Parrish's patrol continued east, as the natives had indicated to them where the Japanese might be retreating through. On January the 27th, Hunt's company ran into parishes, and both shared information and went in opposite directions, hoping to hunt down nearby Japanese units. Hunt set off to the location where Parrish's men had run into a Japanese ambush previously, expecting to find at least 50 Japanese. At 7 a.m. on the 28th, Hunt's men came across an outpost line and engaged it for a few hours, seeing 15 casualties. Hunt pulled his men back out of motor range and the Japanese swarmed upon them, forcing the Americans to perform some heated rearguard actions. Overall, these patrols, amongst others, allowed the Americans to get a better picture of the terrain and concentration of the Japanese. For over two weeks, the American patrols searched for the enemy headquarters, running into countless skirmishes, mostly against the forces of Colonel Seirojiro. By the 27th, Matsuda had reached Kapopo, and he received new orders from General Sakai that he was to take the men further on towards Iboki. Colonel Sato was again to provide the rear guard. This allowed the Americans to seize Nakarop, a place their translators had mistranslated from Japanese documents as Igaropu. 
It had been the nerve center of General Matsudo's operations. They found countless abandoned tents in bivouac areas. The village contained native and Japanese-built structures. There was a huge sign there saying, Matsuda Butai Army Command Principal Place. There were also traces of elaborate radio installations recently removed containing an American-made telephone switchboard labeled Glory Division. It would turn out that Matsuda's personal headquarters, however, were actually located off the main trail roughly midway between Magarupia and Nakaro. Its approach is so skillfully concealed that patrols did not find it until several days later. Well-camouflaged bivouac areas also infested this entire region. With the capture of Matsuda's former HQ, all patrols were combined into the Gilnick Group, led by the legendary Colonel Chesty Puller. Puller pointed his force in the direction of the Borgen bay Itni River area to try and clear it out. They departed Angulopola on January the 30th as the 5th Marines relieved the 2nd Battalion 1st Marines to attack the Iboki area. Attempts were made at leapfrogging, using landing craft to hit places, hoping to trap Japanese during the advance. The landing craft were operated by the Boat Battalion 533rd Engineer Boat and Shore Regiment and the Army's 2nd Engineer Special Brigade. They were made available to carry out the amphibious phase. They were also given the division's Little Cub artillery spotter planes for observation and liaison work. Rough seas frustrated the first landing attempt at Namuramunga on February the 4th, forcing two patrols from the 2nd Battalion to proceed overland from Old Natamo via a coastal track. They got as far as the Mambak, killing a few stragglers and taking three prisoners. The next day, another patrol landed at Alayado and advanced down the coastal track to the mouth of the Gurusa River through Kapopo and Gorisi. By the 10th of February, they managed to kill 16 stragglers and grabbed another six prisoners who were brought back to the Borgen Bay perimeter. Meanwhile, the 3rd Battalion advanced into Gorisi by boat, and on the 12th, they set up a radar station. They then dispatched a patrol to the E River on the 16th, finding it impassable. Another patrol was sent to leapfrog around the Arimega Plantation on the 19th. It was seized quickly, and now the Americans were very close to Yaboki. Meanwhile, Sato reached Kapopo, but did not linger very long, and he continued on to Kareai by February the 12th. That day, the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, aware of the Japanese course of action, set up an advance base at Garosi. Just 20 miles separated the Japanese rearguards from their pursuers now. Sato and his men would reach the Iboki by February the 16th, while the Marines were fording the Ei River, just 30 miles behind. It would take them five additional days to reach Karei To the south, Polar's group had reached Gilnet and Nigol on the 10th, finding no enemy. All of these actions saw the Americans secure the western half of New Britain. Two days later, Company B of the 1st Marines landed on Rook Island, where they would set up another radar installation. They also had to patrol the islands to see if any Japanese remained upon it. They fanned out, running into native villagers who offered them fresh fruit. They would also come across some machine gun emplacements, abandoned bivouac areas, and some medical stations, but no Japanese. The enemy had clearly evacuated the island. All the way back at the Arawa area, Major Komori had received new radios on February the 5th, enabling him to resume communications with the 17th Divisional HQ. He received a very gloomy report. At present, the airfield is covered with grass four to five feet high. The airfield, 200 meters in width, 800 meters in length, will be serviceable only for small airplanes. However, it will take quite some time to develop it. Consequently, I believe that it will not be of great value. 
Knowing full well about Matsuda's withdrawal, he began casting envious eyes in the same direction. On February the 8th, he hinted more broadly to that effect. As has been reported, the value of Marcus Airfield is so insignificant that it seems the enemy has no intention of using it. Due to damage sustained by enemy bombardments and to the increased number of patients, it becomes more and more difficult to carry out the present mission. It is, in my opinion, that as the days pass, replenishment of supplies will become more and more difficult, and fighting strength will be further diminished. Our new line will be cut off and consequently leave us with no alternative but self-destruction. Divisional headquarters, however, was not pleased with this. They sent a telegraphic response the following day, ordering him curtly to continue his mission. Komori would write in his diary that day, I wondered what to do about the order all night long. Could not sleep last night. I felt dizzy all day today. Fortunately for Komori, on February the 17th, Sato was ordered to occupy key positions at the Are River's mouth to help supply him by land. This allowed Komori to begin his retreat north on the 24th while Sato evacuated the Iboki stores to Upmadung. Komori's departure would be just in the nick of time, as the Americans dispatched two tank platoons to clear out the airfield area on the 27th. They would find zero enemy resistance and this would put an end to the Arrow operation. And that's actually going to be it for today for New Britain, as we're now going to be covering some big Allied planning. Over in the Southwest and South Pacific areas, General Douglas MacArthur continued his plan to drive back towards the Philippines. This would be done via amphibious operations along the northern coast of New Guinea. His next main target would be the Vokulka Peninsula, then the Palau Islands, then the invasion of Mindanao. This would also see the Japanese lines of communications to the Dutch East Indies cut off. Yet before all of this happened, he needed to capture the Hansa Bay area on the northeastern part of New Guinea, and then Hollandia in the Dutch part of New Guinea. This action would allow his forces to bypass the Japanese stronghold at Wewak. Meanwhile, there were still ongoing efforts to reduce Rabaul, and to continue that, he still needed to capture the Admiralty Islands and Kaving, which would completely cut off Rabaul. The planners for the South, Southwest, and Central Pacific areas met at Pearl Harbor on January the 28th. However, the Joint Chiefs of Staff decided to delay MacArthur's invasion of the Admiralties and Kaving, pushing it to April the 1st. They had determined it was better to prioritize the invasion of the Marshall Islands in the Central Pacific. As you can imagine, this delay would further delay most of the Southwest Pacific operations along the New Guinea coast. Meanwhile, Admiral Kuzaka and General Imamura had sent the bulk of the 230th Regiment and the recently arrived 1st Independent Mixed Regiment to New Ireland. The 2nd Bataan 1st Independent Mixed Regiment was sent to the Admiralties on January the 25th, joining up with Colonel Izaki Yoshio's 51st Transport Regiment. Then the 1st Bataan 229th Regiment was sent to the Admiralties on February the 2nd. These were very last-ditch efforts by the Japanese to try and secure a very desperate lifeline for Rabaul. No offensive could be mounted for at least three months, thus the Japanese were given ample time to reinforce and strengthen their defenses. Now Admiral Halsey had his own plans to invade the St. Matthews Islands as a preliminary for the attack upon Kaving, and this, like MacArthur's plans, were thrown into disarray. In view of all of this, MacArthur suggested to Halsey a new plan, codenamed Operation Square Peg 
to seize the Green Islands and establish a new PT boat base or an airbase over there. With that in hand, they could project air and naval power further against Raval, and perhaps even as far as truck. However, many of the officers do not believe any of this would significantly isolate Kaving or Raval. Furthermore, they believed it doubtful that fighters stationed at a base in the Green Islands would even be able to cover Kaving. Admiral Wilkinson, with the backing of Admiral Fitch and General Geiger, suggested that the proposal be abandoned, and that plans be laid out for the landing against either Borpup or Bong Island. On December the 28th, however, after analyzing the situation, Colonel William Riley, Admiral Halsey's war planner, made the following observation. There is no doubt but that the occupation of this area, Borpop, and the utilization of air facilities thereat would assist materially in the neutralization of both Rabal and Kaving. However, the grave possibility that such an operation would result in the employment of approximately two divisions and additional naval support, not now available, and will in all probability not be made available in time for this type of intermediate operation, makes it necessary to eliminate Borpop as a possible intermediate operation. Though Green Island is not as far advanced as Boang Island, yet it is quite possible to provide fighter cover for strikes on Kaving. In addition, dive bombers based on Green Island can operate most effectively against shipping at Kaving. Thus Halsey elected to go ahead with Operation Square Peg anyways, because a fighter umbrella could be tossed over the Green Islands during an amphibious invasion something that would not be possible for Boang or Borpop. Halsey's staff went to work planning the amphibious landing. It would be carried out by elements of General Baronclau's 3rd New Zealand Division. PT-176 and PT-178 of Lieutenant Commander Leroy Taylor's Torakina Squadron conducted hydrographic reconnaissance of the islands on January the 10th, and they discovered the southern channels near Barahun Island were the most suitable. 300 men of the 30th New Zealand Battalion, led by Lieutenant Colonel Frederick Cornwall, got aboard the APDs Talbot, Waters, and Dickerson, covered by destroyers Fulham, Bennett, Guest, and Hudson, led by Captain Ralph Earle. They landed on Nissan Island and performed a survey finding a promising airfield site. They also discovered there were no more than 100 Japanese at a relay station alongside 1,200 native Melanesians. I'm pretty sure I said this before in the series, but I'll just repeat it. Melanesians are one of the predominant indigenous inhabitants of the Melanesian Islands, and they are found in an area spanning New Guinea and the Fiji Islands. Something pretty neat about them, along with some indigenous Australians, they are the few groups of non-Europeans to have blonde hair. Google them sometime, they're a very interesting looking people. The Melanesians were so friendly to the New Zealanders, and so hostile to the Japanese, it was decided to omit the usual preliminary naval and aerial bombardments for the landings. Meanwhile, the Central Pacific plans to invade the Marshalls were underway, even before the successful liberation of the Gilberts. The operation was co-named Operation Flintlock, and Admiral Nimitz assigned the 4th Marine Division, reinforced with the 22nd Marine Regiment and the Army's 7th Division, to train intensively for amphibious warfare. They were deemed Tactical Group 1, led by Brigadier General Thomas Watson. It's the name of one of my uncles. They would be backed up by a whopping 23 aircraft carriers, 15 battleships, 18 cruisers, and 109 destroyers. Yes, things had certainly changed since 1942. The American Navy was packing overwhelming heat. Admiral Spruance, now commander of the 5th Fleet, 
would hold the highest operational command for Operation Flintlock. Admiral Turner would be commanding Task Force 51 and the Joint Expeditionary Fleet, and General Holland Smith would be commanding all the expeditionary troops. General Smith's position in the chain of command in relation to Admiral Turner was made much clearer than it had been during the Gilbert's operation. Simply put, he was to be put in direct command of all landing forces and garrison forces once they were ashore. The troop commanders of each of the landing forces, the 7th and 4th Marine Divisions, were expressly placed under Smith's command until such a time as Admiral Spruance should determine that the capture and occupation phase of the operation had been completed. However, Smith's authority as commander of the expeditionary troops had one limitation. It was recognized that, quote, The employment of troops, including the reserve troops engaged in the seizure of objectives, is subject to the capabilities of the surface units to land and support them. Thus, any directives issued by Smith as to major landings or as to major changes in tactical plans had to have the approval of Turner before they could be issued. To this extent, the expeditionary troops' commander was still subordinate to Turner. They would also be supported by Rear Admiral Mark Mitscher's Fast Carrier Force, Task Force 58, and Admiral Hoover's land-based air forces, including the 7th Air Force and other naval air forces. So yeah, America was coming pretty much in overkill. Nimitz's original plan was to advance into the Marshalls by simultaneously hitting Kwajalein, Malolap, and Watye. Together, these contained 65% of aircraft facilities in the island group, leaving the 35% remainder on Jaliot and Mille. Jaliot and Mille could be neutralized and bypassed. Yet after facing the difficulties during the Gilbert's operation, Nimitz decided to also bypass Malolap and Watye as well. He could concentrate all of his forces against Kwajalein. General Smith and Admiral Spruance and Turner opposed this, arguing that sailing directly at Kwajalein would be too exposed if Malilolap and Watche were left unoccupied. Nimitz's new plan would see General Corlett's 7th Division hit the southern group of islands in the atoll, including Kwajalein Island, while Major General Harry Schmidt's 4th Marines would hit Roy Namur and the other northern islands of the atoll. Task Force 52 would transport the 7th Division, while Rear Admiral Richard Connolly's Task Force 53 transported the 4th Marines. After some meetings, Spruance managed to secure the invasion of Majuro, which would be carried out by Lieutenant Colonel Frederick Sheldon's Sundance Landing Force. They consisted of the 5th Amphibious Corps Reconnaissance Company, the 2nd Battalion 106th Regiment, and the 1st Defense Battalion. Spruance wanted to make the atoll a fleet base, so airfields could be constructed to help cover the line of communications to Kwajalein. To support the main landings, Mitscher's fast carrier force was going to smash the enemy aircraft and air facilities at Watye, Mariolap, Roy Namur, and Kwajalein, while his vessels simultaneously coordinated with Turner's cruisers and Rear Admiral Ernest Small's neutralization group Task Force 50.15 to navally bombard them as well. The main threat that needed to be neutralized quickly was Inuitok's airfield. Meanwhile, Hoover's land-based aircraft would help neutralize Mille and Jalut to help smash the other islands and shipping. Throughout November and December, two atolls would receive more attacks than any others. Mille, closest to the Gilberts, thus much more accessible, earned the lion's share of attention. Malolap, with its large air facilities, had to be kept under constant surveillance and attack, thus she came second. Beginning on December the 23rd, aircraft based out of the Gilberts began increasing airstrikes against the marshals. A melee between November the 24th to the 18th of December 
106 heavy bombers dropped 122 tons of bombs over the runways and facilities. The next week, bombers and fighters began attacking Millie's fuel dumps, leveling all buildings, destroying 11 grounded aircraft and another 13 in the air. Millie was neutralized and the Japanese would abandon its airfield by January. The damage dished out to Maliolap was extensive, but not as crippling. Her runways were not entirely put out of operation. From January the 11th to the 25th, B-25s destroyed her ground installations, but still her airfield remained operational. On January the 26th, 9 B-25s followed by 12 P-40s flew to Terra for a low-level attack. The B-25s destroyed 9 interceptors on the ground and 5 more that were airborne. The control tower and two other buildings on the airfield were set afire, and 4 tons of bombs were dropped in fuel dumps and dispersal areas, starting larger fires. As the B-25s left the target to return to Makin, they were chased by about 15 Japanese fighters. 30 miles south of Maliolap, 12 P-40s met the bomber formation and immediately engaged the enemy fighters, destroying 11 of them and severely damaging two more. The strike of January the 26th was decisive. Practically all of the remaining enemy air strength at Maliolap had been destroyed, and the once formidable base was rendered almost powerless to defend itself against further air strikes. Thus, it was neutralized. Zerlut was subjected to 15 attacks, reduced to rubble, and Watye was hit 14 times, suffering extensive damage. Meanwhile, Admiral Ponnell's Task Force 58.1 and 58.3, consisting of six fast carriers, five heavy cruisers, two light cruisers, three brand new class anti-aircraft cruisers, and 12 destroyers hit Kwajalein on December the 5th. That day saw her attacked by over 246 aircraft. As a result, 19 Japanese interceptors and 4 bombers were destroyed at Roy Namur. 7 cargo ships were destroyed at Kwajalein, and extensive damage was inflicted upon both bases. Simultaneously, 29 aircraft hit Watye, where they destroyed 5 grounded aircraft, setting fire to hangars, machine shops, and barracks. Japanese interceptors attacked Pondal's carriers, though they were unable to inflict any serious damage. Following these attacks, Hoover's aircraft continued to smash Kwajalein, tossing 10 attacks, dropping nearly 210 tons of bombs on the atoll. Roy Namur's airfield still remained operational by January the 29th, however, though she only had 35 aircraft available to her. There were 10 reconnaissance planes on Kwajalein, 13 aircraft on Malola, 12 on Watye, and 15 on Inuitak. The Japanese simply did not have any effective air forces left to defend the marshals anymore. The feeling of the men on these islands was that of doom. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Over there, I am now releasing part two in my Ishiwara Kanji series, Manchu Kuo, How to Build a Puppet State. That series was initially a Patreon exclusive, and if you want to go check out my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel, you can find more exclusive podcasts over there. This month's exclusive podcast is me answering the question, why did the Japanese perform so many atrocities during World War II? It is quite in-depth and rather gruesome. Please check it out. 
Finally, the Australians had taken the formidable position known as Shaggy Ridge. The Japanese continued the harrowing march going north as their enemy would not let up upon them. Within the marshals, the IGA and the IGN personnel were inflicted by the full might of America's wartime productivity. All of them knew Uncle Sam was about to come and pay them a visit very soon.